Well, you sing good this morning. You sounded good from upstairs at least, and what little I heard since I've been back in here. But it's good to see you this morning. I hope that you've had a great week and a good weekend, and I hope you're ready and excited about uh, being here this morning. I trust that you are. You're here, and I hope that you're excited to dig into God's Word. And so if you will, grab your Bible and find your place in Luke 19. We are uh, moving right along through this beautiful and wonderful gospel, and uh, Lord willing, we will finish it. Uh, later this spring. This morning I want to speak to the subject uh, of just the idea of being rewarded. That God rewards his children. That he rewards faithfulness. And it's not just faithfulness as as we're going to see in the context of what your life looks like. It's faithfulness and the reward that comes from doing what you're supposed to do with the gospel. I think sometimes as Christians we want to look like Jesus and we want to act like Jesus and we should do those things. But that's not where the, necessarily where the reward comes from. We have a mission that God has called us to, and we see that as we've been working through uh, the, the gospel of Luke. We see Jesus is on mission. We see that he's talking about the kingdom. We see that he is calling his followers to be on that mission as well. And so there is a reward for those who are on mission with Christ. I want you to think about this scenario with me. There's two employees. They'd served the same company for 35 years. They started roughly about the same time. They were retiring roughly about the same time. And so they were being recognized together in a retirement ceremony. The first employee was a man by the name of Dean. Dean was an a, a employee that had served well. He had served faithfully. He was um, just a, a, the kind of employee that helped his company it generates sales and increase the bottom line annually. Uh, the profits rose largely because of his leadership. He was an innovative type of leader during those 35 years. He was willing to take risk. And so under his leadership and the ventures he championed, uh, they annually produced large profits for the company. And so for this reason, during the retirement ceremony, the CEO of the company Uh, called him up and recognized him for his great faithful leadership. In fact, they even went so far as to give him a 5% stake in the company's stock. And along with that, they gave him a 10-day all-expense-paid trip for he and his family to Maui. And so he's standing there after 35 years of working for this company and now retiring and being honored in this way. He was just absolutely blown away by the generosity of both the CEO and the board of directors. Ed is the other gentleman that was retiring on this day, and he's listening to this. He's witnessing how this man, his colleague, is being rewarded and and honored in such a way. And so he's excited about what he thinks is coming his way. And so here's Ed. He's been an employee for 35 years. He's only missed three days from being sick in all of those 35 years. He was a guy that always followed everything in the personnel policy and the manual. And I mean, just a, a stellar employee, one that you would be honored to be around and to learn from. And so as the CEO stands there and recognizes Ed, he gives him not a trip to Maui. He doesn't give him 5% stock in the, or stake in the stock of the company. He doesn't do any of the, those things. He gives him a certificate of achievement for his stellar Uh, attendance as an employee, and he gives him a check for his accrued PTO, the paid time off that he had earned. Well, you can imagine how appalled Ed was at this. Here he is standing next to Dean, who's been given all of this and and more, just accoladed in such great ways, rewarded in such significant ways. And so Ed is appalled by the insignificant gift, and he expresses it to the CEO right there in front of everyone. 
And without missing a beat, the CEO turned to Ed and says, Ed, you were always an employee that we knew was going to be present. This company, however, prides itself on doing more with what you have. We expect our employees to take risk and make investments that profit or return a profit. You were hesitant to do that. You left that responsibility to others. And for, so for this reason, we're thankful for your years of service. We award to you everything that you've earned. Dean, however, took risks. Dean increased our profits. And so we have rewarded him for his faithfulness to our mission. This scenario helps us understand the difference between being rewarded and being awarded. A reward is a gift. It's something given in recognition of an achievement. And so Dean was rewarded generously for how he faithfully carried out the mission of his company. He received what the CEO generously chose to give him. An award is an official payment. It's compensation that's given to someone for an action that has been completed. And so Ed was awarded a certificate of achievement. Ed was awarded the earned PTO that he had accrued. And so he received, in essence, what he had earned. Now you hear this scenario, and some of you are thinking, that is not very fair. That, that's not equitable, right? We, we, our mind immediately goes there and says, this is not a fair treatment of these two men. Ed has been mistreated. I want to caution you this morning, if that's your sentiment, that a very similar scenario to what I just kind of laid before you is found in the text that we're going to look at this morning. So if you've got your Bible, let's turn to Luke chapter 19 and begin reading in verse 11. And this morning, I want you to see out of this passage that God graciously rewards faithfulness and he judicially awards unfaithfulness. So let's start reading in verse 11. Luke says, as they heard these things, remember, Jesus is traveling, and there are crowds that keep coming around him. And so they are in Jericho, leaving Jericho probably at this point. And so these are the crowds that are there in Jericho following Jesus. And so he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, because they were supposed, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore... A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mana has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are, over, you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put money, my money, in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minus. He said, I tell, you that, I tell you that to everyone who has, 
more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. There's a lot going on in this text, and we're going to do our best to get to all of it this morning. Obviously, Jesus is traveling with his disciples. He's moving closer and closer to Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem, as you know, a cross awaits him and a tomb. Jesus is headed to that cross. Jesus is headed there to be a sacrifice for sin. He's there, headed there to offer his life as a ransom for sinners. And so his crucifixion, as we know, looking because we have the benefit of having the can of scripture, we have the benefit of being able to look back upon history, we know that as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem and as Jesus goes to the cross, that's going to be right there on the edge of Passover so Passover season was always an emotionally charged time for the Jews. Passover reminded them of what Passover was supposed to remind them of, and that is God's deliverance of Israel from the Egyptians. And so think with me, if you will, here you've got the Jewish people observing Passover, which reminds them and helps them to remember that God is their deliverer, that God has delivered them from bondage, and yet they set as a captive people. They are under the control, they're under the thumb of Rome. And so here are Jews longing to be free and out from under the oppression of Rome, yearning for a deliverer. We also know that there were subgroups amongst the Jewish people, groups like the Zealots who would use commando tactics against Rome. We, we know that there were the Herodians who had compromised with Rome for their own benefit. But for the most part, the typical Jew rejected those approaches. Instead, they waited for the deliverance of the Lord. They, they waited for the words of the prophets to bring them the promised king and Messiah. And so the Lord knew that many of the people in the crowd were hoping to see him bring in the kingdom. That's what Luke clues us into. And so he tells this parable to clarify things. They're expecting him to walk into Jerusalem and immediately the kingdom is ushered and immediately Rome is overthrown and immediately they are restored to being a free people. But that's not what Jesus is going to do. He clues us in on this in this parable to the idea that Here's the nobleman coming in, and the kingdom is ushered in, and, and then he leaves, but he's coming back. And we know that's exactly what Jesus did, and that's what Jesus will do one day. He has come, and he has ascended, but there's the promise that he will come again, and the kingdom will come in its fullness at that point. And so Jesus is clarifying things for the crowd. He's clearing th clarifying things for us today. Now, the Romans... Understanding how they ruled their people, they rarely back then would give the title of rex or the title of king to anyone in the lands that they had conquered. They conquered many lands at that time. They are the world empire at this point in history. And many times they would never give that title. But Herod the Great was an exception. Herod had uh, defeated the Parthians, Parthians on behalf of Rome. And so he was given the title by Mark Antony of king. Matthew 2.3 refers to Herod as the king. When Herod died in 4 BC, he left over half of his kingdom to his son Archelaus. 
But the title he did not pass along. In fact, everything he was passing on to his son had to be approved by Caesar, had to be approved by the emperor. And so Archelaus had to go to Rome and to have his inheritance approved. And so he arrogantly planned, as he stood before Caesar, to ask for the title, to ask that he be referred to as the king. He took with him a large entourage of people who would speak on his behalf. And what he didn't understand or what he didn't know was that when he got to Rome, there were actually about 50 people who had been sent from Judea and Samaria to speak against him before Caesar. Some of them were from his own family. They accused him of being a murderous man, an inept man, to being a corrupt man, uh, one through whose leadership the, the land, which was fertile, was being polluted and corrupted. And so uh, Caesar, at that point, took a couple of days. He had heard the two arguments, and so he came back a few days later, and he made a ruling. He awarded half the kingdom to Archelaus. He gave him the title of ethnarch and promised to give him the title of king if he proved to be worthy in the years to come. And so no one was pleased with that decision, not Archelaus, not the other side. And so they all returned, and Archelaus never proved himself to be worthy to be called king. I say all that to just help you understand that as Jesus is telling this story, this historical moment that was about, happened about 30 years previous to this is in the back of every Jew's mind. They're thinking about this. Because Archelaus was a man who was a wannabe king. He wanted the title of king. He wanted to be recognized as king. And Jesus here is using this story to set up the clarification of who he is and what he had come to do by saying, I'm not a wannabe king. I'm the true king. I am the nobleman in this parable. I am the nobleman in this story who comes in and inherits a kingdom, who establishes a kingdom. So Jesus looks a whole lot different than Archelaus. He is, in fact, the true king. Here's something else I want you to notice about this parable before we get into the three things I want to point out to you. You're probably familiar with another parable that is similar, and that is the parable of talents. You'll find it in Matthew chapter 25. And so in that parable there, uh, we have similar language but different lessons. In this parable, each of the ten servants received the same amount but different rewards. You see that in the verses that we've read. In the talent or the parable, the talents, the ten servants received different amounts, but they received the same reward. The parable of the talents teaches us to be faithful, to use our different abilities as God gives us opportunities. For instance, some people will have a great deal of ability and God gives them a level of opportunities to use those varying abilities. The important thing is not how much ability you have, but how faithful you are with what you do have and how you use it for the Lord. In this parable of the minas, each servant has the same deposit which most likely is what we're going to use this morning, represents the gospel. Each of us, as Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, have been given the same amount of the gospel, the same deposit of the gospel. But our gifts and our abilities are different. What we do with it are different. But the job is the same. And so each is responsible then to multiply the gospel and to fill the world with the gospel. The important thing there is faithfulness, and the reward for faithfulness is more work, more responsibility. And so here in the parable of the minas, Jesus is the king. He is the nobleman who receives a kingdom, 
The servants are disciples who receive that deposit of the gospel in their lives to which they are to invest it and bring a return, a yield back to the Lord. And then the citizens represent lost sinners who reject the king. And as such, Jesus is the king who rewards the faithful and judiciously awards the unfaithful. So with that said, let me give you three components this morning that we find here in this parable. Here's the first thing I want you to see. The activity of gospel investment. I want you to see the activity of gospel investment. The nobleman here gives a mina to ten of his servants. That's what we see in verse 13. The nobleman comes in, he inherits this kingdom, he calls his servants to himself, and he dispenses to them each a mina. Now, I, I probably understand this morning that you don't know what a mina is. Maybe you have, uh, you're have, you a biblical scholar and you, you understand all the nuances of Scripture, and you're with me today when I say minor. But a mina for the rest of us is something that we don't talk about a lot, right? And so what is a mina? A mina is simply the wages for three months' work for a laborer. It's the amount of money that a laborer would earn over three months' time, about 90 to 100 days. So it's a pretty significant amount of money. Just think of your salary and don't multiply it by three. Whatever you earn in a month, multiply it by three, and that's roughly what you would think a mina is. And so each of these servants was given this same amount. So a mina doesn't, does not signify an ability, but rather it signifies a deposit that's given to every disciple. It is that time of the year, amen? I have been struggling with my voice all week, but uh, it is Sunday and we will press on. A mina is this deposit, so it represents the gospel. That's what I want you to think of this morning. So consequently, every disciple is a steward of the gospel. We all have received this investment capital. Think of Jesus has deposited his life into you. And all of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior have received this investment capital. We've received this deposit. We all have the same amount. And that's good news, isn't it? That, that means we're all on the same playing field. We're all on the same spiritual level. That puts you on par with the Apostle Paul. I mean, here you are, no one knows your name, you're just a regular Joe Blow Christian, you're not making any sort of major waves in the world or culture, and sometimes that's a good place to be, that no one knows your name. And we may tend to think about ourselves, man, I'm not that important to the kingdom of God. That's not true at all. What we're seeing here is you have the same deposit of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same spirit of God in your life that the Apostle Paul had. That you're on the same level as the great heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You're on the same level of Jonathan Edwards and Lottie Moon and Billy Graham and whoever you want to put there in the category. You have the deposit of the Spirit of God in your life. Therefore, you have the same command placed upon your life. You have the same responsibility placed upon your life as a Christian as everyone else. And that is to engage in business until the Lord returns. That's what the nobleman says to these servants. So the disparity between the gospel capital in your life and someone else's has nothing to do with the deposit, but it has everything to do with what you do with that deposit. What are you doing with the life of Jesus that is in you? This parable here calls for the activity of gospel investment. As a disciple of Christ, that means you must invest 
the deposit of the gospel in others. And so when we think about what we're supposed to do as a Christian, when we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we don't, we're not su supposed to just sit on our laurels and wait for Jesus to return. If that was the, the, the way we're supposed to live our lives, then why in the world would Jesus ever leave us here? Why would he ever uh, put us in a place where we are tempted to sin and, and, and lured into great wickedness and iniquity and, and all of the struggles and strains that come with living in a fallen world? If the purpose for us as a Christian is to experience salvation and, and then go to heaven, then why not just redeem us and take us to heaven? So there has to be another reason we're here, and that comes to the mission. Over and over again, what Jesus is saying through the Gospels is that we as followers of him who've been redeemed, born again into new life, have a mission to live out. And the mission is the Gospel. We're to take the life of Jesus that has been deposited into us and invest it into others so it yields new life in them. And when we do that, we see from this parable that our gospel investment is then rewarded. Look at verse 16. Here we see that Jesus tells the story of the nobleman who's given this deposit, and then he returns, and he wants to know what they've done, what business they've engaged in while he's been gone. And so he calls an account, and they all come in. The parable tells us about three individuals. The first two men come in, and they say, Lord, the money that you gave me, has created 10 more minus. In other words, he's earned a 1,000% investment, 1,000% yield over the investment in his life. And so he gives that back. He says, this is yours. The next man comes in, he says, your mina earned five. And, and Jesus, or the nobleman, looks at these two individuals and says, well done, good servant. The, the, the investment you've made has paid dividends, therefore you will be rewarded. You will be setting over ten cities. You will be setting over five cities. They, he rewards them with a blessing. He rewards them with responsibility. This parable here presents to us a king who graciously rewards his servants. The grandness of this reward, however, should not be missed by the possessions. We should not miss by looking at the cities they're ruling over. Now, Jesus is presenting through this parable something far greater than material possessions. But we, if we're not careful, have a tendency to think about what we can gain. And we can look at the Christian life. We can even look at our willingness and our obedience to share the gospel with others as a way to benefit ourselves. But that's not the way we should see this. We should want to serve because it gives us the privilege to be closer to the Lord, gives us the privilege to walk in step with the Lord, gives us privilege to bear the responsibility of the kingdom with our king. Helmut Thylik says this about this idea. He says, heaven does not consist... In what we shall receive, whether this be white robes and heavenly crowns or ambrosia and nectar, but rather in what we shall become, namely the companions of our King. So the reward of Christ's faithful servants is an elevation of eternal intimacy with Him. It's the joy of serving alongside the king as his co-regent. It's the joy of serving alongside the king as his viceroy. It's the joy of serving alongside the king as his confidant. 
So the eternal reward then is not rest, but as I said earlier, it's responsibility in the work. Responsibilities as we work with him in vast and unimaginable new spiritual enterprises. I think sometimes we have this idea of working hard in this life for the kingdom of God so that we can rest in the next life. Yes, it is our Sabbath rest. But I'm telling you right now, our experience in eternity is not sitting on a cloud with some sort of harp in our hands and we just kind of goofing off for the rest of eternity. No, in some way, we will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And I have no idea what that's going to look like. I have no concept, really definitive concept of what that's going to look like. But you just need to think, Jesus has not just called us into a relationship with him. So now that we're just loafing and goofing off. No, in some form or fashion, we will rule and reign with him. And that's going to be glorious. That's going to be awesome. He's inviting us to the table. He's inviting us into places that the angels would long to understand. They long to understand our salvation, but also with that salvation, they also learn, yearn to understand what that's going to mean in eternity. God has grand plans for us, and that is his reward for our faithfulness. And so this morning, the question that just stares us in the face is this. How active are you with the gospel investment Christ has made in your life? What are you doing with the life of Jesus in you? What are you doing with it today? Are you investing it in others? Are you investing it in your family? Are you investing it in your friends? Are you investing it in your neighbors? Are you investing it in your community? Are you investing it in the nations? What are you doing with the life of Jesus that has changed you? There's a second thing I want you to see here, and that is the passivity of gospel conservation. We see the activity of gospel activity, or, or <clears throat> whatever the first one was. What is it? Investment. Investment. That's right. I knew it was something. Got too many things going on in my head right now. But the passivity of gospel conservation. Notice the third servant is brought in. This third, third servant comes in before the nobleman to give an account of what he did with his mina. And so he's called to account, and he reaches back into his satchels. The way I kind of picture it, he pulls out a handkerchief, and that, in that handkerchief is those three months of wages, and he lays this down before the nobleman and says, here's the mina you gave me, I'm returning it to you. Now, on, on some level, you may look at that and say, well, at least he didn't lose it, right? At least he didn't squander. At least he didn't, uh, you know, um, waste it on frivolous living. Maybe at least he's not like the prodigal son in Luke 15 that took the inheritance and, and squandered it with lascivious living. But that's not the point of this text. The parable here is talking about taking the investment of the gospel and investing it in other people. So this servant takes the mina and gives it back. Why does he not do anything with it? Well, he tells us. He doesn't do anything with it because he's fearful. He believes his master to be a hard man. He believes his master to be an exacting man. And so his thoughts about his Lord were slanderous. They were uh, not based on truth. He did not understand the character of his master because his master is not like that at all. So he accused him of being severe. He accused him of being exacting. This servant here appears to have feared that he would get no return for his work because all the profit would go to the master. So in essence, his rationale for not investing was because there's nothing in it for me. 
There's nothing in it for me. I'm doing this for the Lord, but there's no kickback for me. How many times do we live our Christian life like that? That, that we really are only in this Jesus thing for ourselves. We just don't want to go to hell, right? How many of us, I, I probably would argue if that's your rationale for putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you may not even be a believer. You're just trying to get some fire insurance. But sometimes we don't live out our faith simply because there's just nothing in it worth our time. This investment was not worth his time, and so he does nothing with it. In essence, this is a sorry excuse of a disciple, and he slanders God in his heart, and he hoards this deposit that Jesus has made in him, putting it in our own lives. He tucks it away in Iraq. In his heart, he says, rather than being active with the gospel, I'm okay with just being conservative. I'm okay with conservatism as well. And so I'm going to speak about this here, but hear me this morning. There's nothing wrong with being conservative. We need to conserve the orthodoxy of the faith. We need to believe the essentials of the gospel. We need to hold them strongly. We need to hold them closely. We need to guard them and protect them. We need to be conservative in the way we look at the word of God. But never allow that to lead to laziness in your life. Never allow that to bring you to a place of inactivity when it comes to sharing the gospel with others. Sometimes we can be lulled into thinking that it's enough to preserve Christian doctrine and believe the right things. It's enough to get married and raise your family in church. It's enough to participate in small group and be faithful in attendance to worship and find a place to serve on a ministry or somewhere in the church. And we think, that's my exercise. That's my gift back to the Lord. That's my service unto him. And all of those things are good. You should be in worship. You should be in small group. We want you to be in relationship, not just with the Lord, but with his people. We, we believe that's how you grow spiritually, but it's not just about how much knowledge you have. It's not just about how you use your spiritual giftedness to serve the body of Christ. The way we are rewarded and the reason we are rewarded is largely what we do with the gospel so that others come to know Jesus Christ. That was a good place for the rest of you, except for the three that said amen, to say amen. Uh, maybe I just can't hear you. You're on the back row. I can't hear you back there. I understand. Say it louder next time. This servant's passive disobedience, I believe, is rightly judged. It's rightly judged because that's the way Jesus said it. Ignorance of his Lord's character resulted in him being rebuked by his own words. He's also lost the mina. That was entrusted to him. Did you catch that? Jesus tells the story. And he says, take that man's mina and give it to the guy that has ten. Now, we hear that and think, that is not fair at all. That is not equitable at all. So rather than being rewarded, this disobedient servant was awarded what his actions had earned. That is, his works are incinerated. Yet he himself is saved. He's a disciple. In the, in the context of this parable, we are to see him as a follower of Jesus Christ. He is a believer. He is on par with many of us in this room who are, who are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And yet, his life doesn't look very much like a disciple. He's not being faithful with the deposit of the gospel in his life. He's a follower of Jesus, but barely. His life looks a lot like the Corinthians. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, if anyone, 3, 15, I should say, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. It's, it's the idea of getting into heaven by the skin of your teeth, barely getting in. And so this morning, how passive are you with the gospel investment that Christ has made in your life? Passivity is not a good thing. We need to be active with our gospel. We need to be active with the faith that the Lord has given us. We need to be active and share what Jesus has done in us with other people. This brings us to a final thing I want you to see this morning. That is the gravity of gospel rejection. This parable ends with an alarming and gruesome scene. So look at verse 14, and then we're going to read verse 27. Jesus says, but his citizens, speaking of the nobleman, hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. That, when you read through the text, I don't know about you, but I, first time I read this a few weeks ago, that, that text, that verse stood out to me thinking, wow, that's a, an amazing thing. And then you go to verse 15 and you're expecting something to be done about these rebellious people. And Nothing is done. It goes into the conversation about the first servant and the second servant and the third servant. And you begin to think, well, is Jesus, you know, is this nobleman going to do anything about these rebellious people? Well, look at verse 27. He's going to do something about them. He says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. How does that make you feel? Bring them here, these enemies of mine, and slaughter them before me. How does that rest on you this morning? Is that the way you view Jesus? Is that the way you picture the Lord today? Well, that's the way that we're presented Jesus. He, that's just how he's presented to us. So the citizens of this kingdom rebel against this nobleman. It, it, the idea here is there are people who are enemies against the king, enemies against the Lord. And in response, then, the nobleman commands that each of them be rounded up and slaughtered in front of them. The inference is Jesus will do likewise. Jesus one day will round up everyone who's been an enemy against him, everyone who's lived in rebellion against him, everyone who sought to overthrow his lordship, and he will eternally slaughter them before him. Now, that's not a very loving portrayal of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's not the Jesus we typically think of. We like the, the cute little baby Jesus that's lying in the manger. Like, we like that Jesus. The, the, the Jesus that we see in the nativity scene at Christmas, that's the Jesus we prefer. We, we like the Jesus who is uh, humble and meek. We like the Jesus who uh, helps people and loves people. We like the Jesus who feeds the hungry, right? We like the Jesus who heals the sick. We like the Jesus who is... Um, sympathizing with the hurting. He has an empathy about him. We like the Jesus who brings justice to the marginalized. Like We want a, a social justice warrior in Jesus Christ that he would stand for those who can't stand for themselves. That's the picture that we typically think of when we think of Jesus Christ. We don't think of Jesus as the one who would slaughter his enemies. If you were watching the Super Bowl a few weeks ago, the organization that's known as He Gets Us um, has been buying airtime in at least the last two Super Bowls, maybe longer, where they present these commercials to try to give a, a perception of who Jesus is. And this year's commercial portrayed Jesus as the loving, kind, humble 
empathy type of character who would wash the feet of someone else. And so you see Jesus portrayed in all these different scenarios washing the feet of people. And that is a beautiful and wonderful thing, right? Jesus loves people. Jesus loved the world. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus was willing to lay his life down for every single person, no matter who they are or what their lifestyle looks like. That is Jesus. Yet, what that commercial portrayed about Jesus was not a full picture of Jesus. You see, for instance, Jesus washed the feet of people during his life and ministry. When we read the Gospels, we see him doing that. But Jesus only washed the feet of his disciples. He only washed the feet of those who had bowed their knees to him in lordship and were following him. That's a correct portrayal of Jesus washing feet. But also with that, they didn't portray Jesus doing other things that we see in the gospel. What about Jesus in the temple court area overturning tables of the money changers and running those guys out with whips and chains, or at least whips? Where's that picture of Jesus? Where's the picture of Jesus rebuking sin? Where's the picture of Jesus uh, rebuking the religious hypocritical Pharisees? Where's the Jesus who's calling out immorality everywhere that he sees us? Now think about this. Jesus does receive those who are sinners. If he didn't, he wouldn't be receiving you and I. But if you go to John chapter 8, what you see there is Jesus receiving this woman caught in the act of adultery, literally ripped out from the home where she is engaging in an adulterous relationship, dragged out into the square in front of everyone and the Lord Jesus and accused. And Jesus there kneels down in humility and love and acceptance and receives her to himself. But what does he do about that? What does he say? Where are your accusers? Are there? No, they've all left. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. See, that's the full commercial, or that's what the commercial should have been to give a full picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus never permitted people to continue in their sin. And when they do continue in their sin, he brings the just wrath of a holy God against it. And that's what we see in this parable here. So the gospel is free, and the gospel is available for all people. That's Romans 10, 13. But for those who will rebel, those who would reject his lordship, there is an eternal punishment. And we must never forget that. See, the gravity of gospel rejection is eternal separation from God. Revelation chapter 20 gives us a a grand picture of what this is going to look like at the end. Listen to what John says. Verse 11, he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The gravity of gospel rejection. Anyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will one day be thrown into the lake of fire. Cast into the lake of fire. 
where people who have rebelled and rejected Jesus as Lord and Savior will forever and ever be slaughtered in eternal torment. Why? Because they chose it. They chose it. That's their award. That's their award. Paul said in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin, the payment, the compensation, the award for sin is death. You remember D Dean and Ed that we began with? Both men worked for the same company. Both men had spent 35 years there. Both men were retiring. And during that retirement ceremony, Dean was rewarded generously for how he had faithfully carried out the mission of the company. He received what the CEO generously chose to give him. I mean, it was a gift that just blew his mind. Ed, however, was awarded a certificate for stellar attendance. He was given his accrued PTO. He received only the official payment, the only the official compensation for what he had earned by his actions. And so as we think about standing before Jesus one day, will you get a reward or will you get an award? Will you get what you earned or what you, will you get the gift and the blessing and the reward of a generous, loving Savior? Because you took the life of Jesus that he had deposited in your life. And you invested it in other people. Man, your Christian life ought to be about investing in people, sharing the gospel, loving people to Jesus. There's all kinds of ways to do that. But you first have to open your mouth. Your life needs to exemplify Jesus. It needs to back up your profession, right? Your, your profession of faith, the, the way you articulate the gospel ought to look like Jesus. Your life ought to look like Jesus to, to match that. But you got to share. you got to share. you got to love people to Jesus Christ. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for the life of Jesus. And every one of us in this room, everyone watching us online today, who know Jesus the Lord and Savior, we thank you for the deposit of your life in us. And God, at the same time, we understand that you've given us a great responsibility. Responsibility to take that deposit and to invest it in other people, in our children, in our family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, or the circles of influence that you've put us in in life. There's responsibility there, and we want to be found faithful in that. We want to be found um, good stewards of these areas of influence. And so this morning, I pray that you'd help us to do that. Father, perhaps in some of our minds today, you're putting names there. You're putting faces there. You're calling us to take action in certain areas of life. I pray that you'd help us to put feet to where our faith wants to lead us. Help us to be your hands and feet to people, to love them to the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we are also mindful that in this parable, there are those who are in rebellion. There are those, because of their rebellion, who are under judgment. And this morning, in this room, watching this online, there may be some who are in that arena of life. And so this is a call to faith. This is a call to repentance. This is a call to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, to receive the deposit of life that he wants to give. So God, as we move to a time of response, help us to understand where we are spiritually and what the decisions, what the response needs to be for us individually, even this morning. May your Holy Spirit have freedom to move. May our hearts be receptive to your word, our ears attuned, and our eyes open to your truth. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.